your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. We're all originals. You've all made America better, a better place, and you've made us seem a better place in the eyes of the people of the world. I'm Ian Wilder. I'm Fiona Hatch. I'm Sarah Nels. I'm Tyler Katzenberger. And I'm Allison Keeley. You're listening to 1050 Bascom, a podcast brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we are excited for the opportunity to talk with Badger alum Brian Blom as a part of our Career Conversation series. Brian, who graduated from UW-Madison with a major in political science, is currently a senior vice president at Porterfield, Fettig & Sears, LLC, a government relations firm based in Washington, D.C. Prior to his work in government relations, Brian worked in the U.S. Senate as a staff director for the Banking Subcommittee on National Security, International Trade, and Finance, and as the Republican staff director for the Banking Subcommittee on Securities, Insurance, and Investment. Today, we will ask Brian about his academic and professional path, as well as any advice he might have for undergraduate students listening in. We deeply enjoyed our conversation with Brian, and we hope that you will too. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brian. We're super excited to have you on. Likewise. No, it's it's Friday, so it's a good day, and I get to talk to fellow Badgers, so it's an even better day. Well, Brian, as a fellow Badger, we were wondering if you wouldn't mind telling our audience a bit more about how your academic and professional background has led you to where you are today. Sure. So I graduated from UW-Madison in May of 2004 with a political science degree, and I pretty much used that degree uh, every day after graduation until, you know, into my current position. So, you know, maybe I'll kind of start with the political science kind of academic career, but, you know, Prior to college, I I wasn't that interested in politics. I thought I'd major in business or even education. My dad worked for a global manufacturer in Milwaukee. My mom used to be a teacher. So those were kind of the careers I knew. Um, I had a a great high school government teacher. Shout out to Mr. Brown from Homestead High School in Ozaki County, Wisconsin. Um, That kind of sparked my interest. But really, it wasn't until UW-Madison where I, you know, I took some entry-level courses and then those electives that really kind of got me, me excited about politics. So even after junior year, I was still debating, vacillating between kind of a business degree or political science degree. And I did a, a semester out in Washington, D.C. and took some courses. Professor Petey House was teaching. And, and then I interned at a think tank called American Enterprise Institute. And there's a lot of very interesting thought leaders there. After I completed that senior year, I said, I, I know I need to finalize my political science degree and then come right back to Washington. And that's what I did. Came back to Washington, knocked on a bunch of doors, was looking for a job. And a door opened, thankfully, with my hometown member of Congress. So uh, a guy named uh, Congressman Sensenbrenner, who's no longer there, but he represented the outskirts of Milwaukee and my home uh, county of Ozaki County. And so that was just an amazing opportunity. I mean, to work for your hometown member, you know the people coming in the door, you know the issues, you know the businesses, you know the groups, the nonprofits. So that was really an amazing opportunity. Then I actually jumped over to a, a Florida member of Congress and worked for him for a little while. That was a different experience. That was when I really started to get into legislative issues. I mean, I had random, I got kind of whatever the other legislative assistants didn't want. So I was doing, you know, postal reform. Uh, I did some kind of fishing policy, did some animal rights. And that was great opportunity to kind of dive into the policy arena. And right when I was kind of starting to get a hold of things there, Carson Sensbrenner called me and said, you know, I'm chairman of the Judiciary Committee why don't you come back and work for me on the committee? And, and as a political science major who was 
interested in, in law school at the time, there's no better place to learn about the law than working for the House Judiciary Committee. So I worked on the House Judiciary Committee for a few years and just an amazing opportunity. And then I guess I'll skip fast forward to 2011. And that's when I started to focus more on financial services policies. In 2010, there's a lot of new members of Congress, big kind of Republican wave. And there's a new Republican from Northwestern Wisconsin by the name of Sean Duffy, who hired me to start his office. It was the best job I never want to have again, starting a congressional office from scratch. It's challenging, but rewarding as well. And so we had to build up a legislative staff. So we were hiring people. We had to uh, put out position policy papers. And he was on the financial services policy. And so I handled, I was his lead policy staffer on the financial services committee. And it was a really interesting time because it was after the financial crisis of 08, 09. And so we were still kind of figuring out the aftermath of that. Dodd-Frank, which was a massive um, reform bill, was passed in 2010. A lot of the rules were still being written. And so I worked for him for a number of years and then got recruited to jump over the Senate. And so I uh, went over the Senate side, and that's where I had even more senior roles there as kind of staff directors of two different subcommittees. I worked for a senator from Nebraska and a senator from Illinois and handled all of their banking uh, policy portfolio. And then I, I jumped over to the, the private sector about seven years uh, ago and worked for a firm now called Porterfield, Fedigan Sears, where we kind of specialize, we're a boutique firm in financial services policy. And so I get to do that kind of on the outside now and help a number of trade groups and companies, small and large, kind of navigate the complexities of the federal government. So it's pretty exciting stuff, I think. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. And that's so great to hear. So you also, you mentioned you worked on the subcommittees for national security, international trade finance, and securities, insurance, and investment. What do those committees focus on and what type of legislation, hearings, et cetera, would we really expect to see come out of some of these subcommittees? Sure. So both of these subcommittees are housed under the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee, which actually has a a large uh, jurisdiction in and of itself. But the two subcommittees that I kind of specialized in, I'll start with the the National Security, International Trade, and Finance Subcommittee. So we really spend a lot of time focusing on kind of export financing, international financial and development institutions. And one big bill that I worked on when I was part of that subcommittee was the Export-Import Bank Reauthorization Act. Hopefully that doesn't bore too many listeners, but it is it is actually an important institution that really helps with U.S. competitiveness abroad and, and helping um, U.S. manufacturers. And so that was a really interesting process because prior to, to my working on the bill, historically it had been very non-controversial. It's always had bipartisan support and there was a few critics at the time. And so we had to kind of work through that and, and push back and they, you know, some of their gripes were fair and some were kind of unfounded. And so we, we pushed through that and ended up finally signing the bill into law. So that was, that was a pretty big accomplishment at the time. On the insurance and investment and security subcommittee, so that's also as a large uh, subcommittee jurisdiction oversees the Securities and Exchange Commission, covers insurance issues. So a lot of insurance is state regulated, but there is some federal overlap. And actually, when I was on that subcommittee, one of the big insurance issues was the reauthorization of the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act. So after 9-11, Congress had to kind of step in and, and provide a federal backstop to insurers because there's a lot of uncertainty in the private sector market on claims. And so the law was passed after 9-11, but it had to be reauthorized. And so we reauthorized it in 2015 and kind of had debates around, you know, what should the triggers be? What should the kind of total cap be? 
And we ended up passing that law, um, again, bipartisan fashion, signing the law. So that was a great accomplishment. And then also, lastly, on the insurance front, we actually did have a, a kind of a fix or a tweak to Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank initially had categorized banks and insurance companies in the same uh, kind of requiring capital standards that were very similar. And we had to prove that that insurance companies and banks are actually different when it comes to capital standards. And so we, we were able to get that fixed in there. So those were some big bills that I worked on when I was there. And those are the type of issues that today, even the subcommittees are, are looking at. Sounds like you covered a lot in your time there. I'm wondering how you first became interested in specifically banking and financial policy and what continues to interest you about that sector? Sure. So some of it was was by accident. Again, it was just because the boss I worked for was put on that committee. But really, I mean, I've always personally been interested in business and personal finance. I mean, you know, I think financial, and I'll broaden it to financial services. I know you mentioned about banking policy, but, um, you know, it may sound esoteric to some, but it's, it's very tangible. I mean, you know, for the most part, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but, you know, 95% of people have a, a bank account of some sort. There's a few percent that are unbanked and, and we need to work to try to help bring them into the financial system. You know, the majority kind of are, are dealing with banks on a regular basis. Financial services policy also includes housing finance. So um, that includes mortgages, that includes any type of loans, credit, access to credit. All of that I find really interesting because there are, you know, it's it's what everyday families are are kind of thinking about. And obviously when the Fed raises rates and mortgage rates go up, that has an effect on on everyone. And so um, kind of how money is moved around, uh, saved, spent trying to figure out policies that can help more people climb the economic ladder. I, I find all of that very interesting. That's really interesting to hear, especially I feel like often in policymaking, you don't get to see that very tangible or almost kind of immediate effect sometimes. So that's really interesting to hear. And that's a good motivator. I really like that. I'm wondering now, looking at your current role, how did the skills and experiences that you gained on Capitol Hill translate into your work that you currently do in government relations? Yeah, a lot of the skills are really complementary and transferable. I mean, when you're in Congress and you're working on bills and you're trying to find common grounds and you're working with staff and members from all across the country with all sorts of different priorities. And so trying to find kind of that compromise on, on a piece of legislation, I'm, I'm still doing that on this side. I mean, I'm, I'm representing kind of different interests. And so our clients, as I mentioned before, are our trade associations, banks, fintechs, digital asset providers, exchanges. And so it's trying to help them navigate and, and try to strategize on X member may be interested in this, Y member may be interested in this. And so trying to help figure out that big puzzle, which, which I find uh, very interesting. In that same vein, could you maybe give us an insight into a day in the life in your job? Yeah, it's really my, my days are they kind of revolve around Congress in the sense that, and the administration, I mean, August is a little slower time for me, just as it is in Congress and the administration, but spring and fall, very busy, following lots of hearings, taking experts, talking to offices in advance of hearings. When we find out witnesses, sometimes even prepping, we may have clients that testify. So it's helping them prep for a hearing. Sometimes it's, you know, it may be, you could be playing offense or defense on a piece of legislation, depending on uh, where your client sits. And and lots of times, sometimes you're you're competing against another interest. And sometimes it's just the big picture of everything that, you know, the House or Senate may have to do. And it's trying to kind of move your issue up the priority list. And so that's a constant uh, battle. Constantly reading news, sometimes uh, hopefully kind of getting nuggets in advance of the news, just help our clients be best prepared 
for what's coming down the pike with legislation or, or regulatory policy. Transitioning back into your insights on policy and Congress, what changes have you noticed in the banking and housing policy landscape over the past decade or so? And are there any major trends or changes that we can expect to look out for in the near future? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously changed a lot. You know, I mean, I guess to show my age, you know, when I started in Congress, like smartphones really weren't a thing. And now, you know, a lot of people are banking on and using applications, fintech applications on their phone. Going back to housing finance, most mortgages now are originated by non-banks as opposed to banks. And so it's really been interesting seeing the development of kind of new new credit providers and challenging some of the traditional incumbents. A lot of financial institutions have partnered with fintechs. And so I've seen that been a a successful strategy uh, kind of going forward. And then also digital assets. I mean, cryptocurrency is a totally new arena that's just come onto the scene in the last few years here. Yeah. And so I'm curious, it's often said that Congress sort of lags behind on regulation, especially in that tech policy sphere. I mean, do you believe that that's true? And if so, what can Congress do to better stay on top of emerging technologies and policy challenges? Yeah, I do believe that's true. I think in general, Congress is often reactive as opposed to proactive. And that's kind of the nature of the institution. The truth is it it takes a long time to kind of learn issues that are, you know, especially on on the tech side, whether it's, you know, artificial intelligence, digital assets, monetary policy. And so it takes time for members to attend uh, briefings. And so, you know, I think just an example, the the chair of the Financial Services Committee right now, a gentleman by the name of Patrick McHenry, I think has done a really good job of trying to educate his members on on digital assets. And he spent countless days, hours, weeks going through briefings and then going through kind of he's been pushing this bill text and having all the bipartisan members come in and turn through the text and learn through it together. But that takes time. And so you need a dedicated kind of leader at, at the committee to to push that. And then, you know, I'll just put a plug in for Hill staff here too. I mean, Luckily, just recently, they've increased uh, the cap on what Hill staffers can make. And I think they, there's been an effort to try to pay them more over the last few years. But um, it's a lot of, lot of work to learn these issues. And so I've always been worried about kind of brain drain and the smartest folks from the Hill leaving at the staff level and compensating them fairly so that they stay there because you need those issue experts are, are important. You mentioned Patrick McHenry and how he runs his committee. What do you think makes good committee leadership and what keeps a committee running smoothly? That's a good question. And I've seen certainly multiple chairs and ranking members that have done it successfully and and some not so much. You know, I think it's at the beginning trying to figure out what bills you're going to just do as messaging and what you're trying to accomplish by passing into law. And, and I think some chairs and ranking members get those confused. And so you know, they, they get upset when a, when a bill that's clearly a partisan bill, message bill, doesn't go anywhere. And so I think as long as a leader kind of has that in mind, uh, whether it's Republican or Democrats, say that, you know, this is something we know, you know, given that we have divided government is not going to become law, but I'm going to kind of raise attention to it. That's fine. But then let's have another bucket of like real actual legislation that we're going to get kind of bipartisan buy-in and bicameral buy-in too. Uh, one thing that I've encouraged leaders to do is Sometimes the House and Senate stay in their little corners. And so for both of them to talk amongst each other, because you, you do need uh, both chambers in, in order to pass something into law. So I, I've seen some members or leaders that have done that more effectively than others. So you have worked in the Senate under multiple sessions under both Democratic committee leadership and Republican committee leadership. 
Were there some notable differences that you noticed or was there anything that you observed between sessions that really stood out to you? Sure, the, the priorities and agendas are definitely different. I will say I've, I've actually had the unique opportunity. So I've worked in the, the House majority, House minority, Senate majority, Senate minority. So I've kind of seen this uh, governing from all angles. Majority is definitely more fun because you know, it's, it's helpful because you have a vantage point uh, or you know kind of what the agenda is. You have more ability to shape the agenda. You have more opportunities to maybe have your amendments included. You usually get more witnesses at a hearing. So there's no doubt that majority is is more fun, but minorities, especially in the Senate, serves a very uh, valuable purpose. And the Senate, you know, you you definitely can't get anything done uh, without bipartisan support. In the House, you can you can potentially ram something through, but in the Senate, you still need 60 votes to pass any major legislation, and so um, that requires bipartisan support. And every senator, just by the nature of the Senate, has more influence and power. Again, going back to what I said earlier, especially in the Senate, getting kind of that buy-in from across the aisle is important to advance agendas. And you have to adapt to different chairs and their priorities. So, for example, on the House side, Maxine Waters, last Congress, was very focused on housing. Some chairs are more focused on capital markets and, and helping more companies go public. And some chairs are more interested in traditional banking, and some are more interested in uh, the, the future of financial services, more on the fintech side. And so it's kind of adapting to whatever that leader is, is most interested in. And do you have any advice for students who might be listening today that are interested in going to the Hill or maybe even working on a committee or in government relations like you do? I'd say go do it. I think it's a great opportunity. I think I mentioned my internship in DC that really hooked me into wanting to stay here and wanting to be active in government. Just as general advice, and I certainly didn't do a good job with this, you know, everyone wants to help students and, and young people. And so feel free, even if a job's not open, you know, I think anytime you, you can ping someone and ask for just an informational interview, I mean, I guess that's a formal word for networking, but you can just ask somebody and, and most people are going to give you the time of day just to talk. And, and even if a job's not open or a position's not open in a committee, they'll keep you in mind or they may know another friend that has a job opening and they can send you that way. So again, I, I didn't do a great job at that, but I think that students now, um, I think just anyone will, you know, and listen to 1050, uh, the uh, the podcast too, you know, because there's there's some good stuff on there too. Wow. Thank, thank you for the shout out. Going into more advice for current college students, what kind of things did you do outside the classroom that helped you with respect to your scholarships and success in the job market? Were you involved in any campus organizations, activities? I know you talked a little about your internship. Yeah, I had multiple internships. Honestly, I wish I was more involved. Great thing about Wisconsin, and this this is even more true now than it was when I graduated, it's a battleground purple state you know, if you want to get involved in a campaign, if that's what you're interested in, a campaign will take you. So on on either side of the aisle and you're going to have candidates come to the state. I've certainly volunteered on campaigns and I think I prefer the policy making side as opposed to I'm certainly interested in the political side, but I'd, I'd go nuts if I was a full-time campaigner. Um, but I do think that like, it was a good kind of foray to understand that because a lot of policymakers, you know, you have to understand that retail politics so that you can get reelected and you figure out what people on the ground are really caring about. Um, so I, I de definitely recommend that if students are interested. Certainly internships. I've interviewed a lot of people over the years, and that's what I certainly look at it on a resume more so than GPA. If people have a good GPA and they put on their grade, but I've never asked for it. It's never been a make it or break it thing. It's 
it's more I'll go straight to the internships and say, well, first I'll say, okay, if they're a badger, then you know, you, you, I'll give you a special look. But you know, for anyone else, I just say, let's look at the their internship opportunities. When you're interviewing, when you're hiring, are there any other things that you look for outside of the internships, like specific traits or experiences, or maybe something specific that that person can bring to your firm? Yeah, it's sometimes tough to to see this on a resume, but certainly in an interview, you could, you know, just just a sense of humility. To be honest, I used to love the the people that would come in and you know they say I'll do any job, whether it's above me or beneath me, um, because a lot of times, whether it's on the hill, I mean, you know, I, I started as a again, as an intern and kind of worked my way up from staff assistant to legislative correspondent, legislative aide. And the first tasks you're doing are pretty menial. You're answering phones, you're maybe running some papers back and forth, you're making copies and, you know, everyone goes to DC, they want to change the world and, and you're doing that. And it, it takes a while to do that. So I think just that sense of humility, that willingness to kind of do anything, because if you prove yourself there, the big stuff will certainly follow. I think I've, I've seen a few candidates that kind of come in and they think that they're going to be you know, writing legislation on day one, or they'll think that, you know, um, they, they want a big time job right out of the gates. And so that's my just one little bit of advice. Yeah, that's excellent advice. And that's great to hear. Well, is there anything that we have not yet talked about that we should? No, I just think between honestly, Madison and Washington, there's just so many great opportunities, whether it's directly on the Hill, there's, there's nonprofits, there's think tanks, it's pretty, pretty cool. And for those that that haven't experienced, you know, even I just recommend like a summer in Washington might not be your cup of tea. I thought I'd be back in Wisconsin, you know, two years after that, here I am several years later. I, I just think it's pretty cool place where there's a, a lot of really, really outgoing, smart, extroverted people doing pretty amazing things from not only across the country, across the world, shout out to Washington, but, but really in Madison too. So, so many opportunities um, at the at the state government too. Speaking of Madison, we always like to end with a few fun questions. Do you have a favorite memory from your time here at UW? I know it's hard to pick just one. Yeah, yeah, and it was a while ago. You know, I guess on the maybe more chill side, I I loved. I think the summers in Madison are underappreciated. I spent a summer there, and you know, whether it's just sitting at the terrace, you know, it's a little quieter. I I just loved it. On the more amped up side of things, I do remember the Badgers versus Ohio State, October 2003. Uh, Badgers won in thrilling fourth quarter. We rushed the field. Uh, it was a beautiful evening. That was a, that was a pretty exciting experience and just a, a great time overall. Awesome. And for our folks who might be headed to D.C., do you have any favorite restaurants or places to go in the area? Yeah. So, uh, you know, on kind of the international side, Rasika is one of my favorite Indian restaurants. Definitely recommend it. If you kind of want a classic DC spot where you might see some, some White House folks, you might see some tourists, you might see some business folks, Old Ebbets Grill right across from the White House is, a I think, a great place. You know, crab cake sandwich is kind of their, their classic um, meal. And then, you know, just favorite place in DC. I mean, right now, again, I, this shows my age. It's, it's being home with my family. But if, if you haven't seen DC from the water, it's it's a pretty cool experience. And I, I'm fortunate I don't own a boat, but I belong in a boat share. And so taking a boat kind of down by Lincoln and the Memorial and Georgetown, and um, there's also ferries that run. But uh, seeing seeing Washington from the water is, is a pretty interesting perspective. And I'm, I'm always happy on the water. So that's my other uh, plug uh, if you're coming to D.C. All right. Well, thank you so very much for joining us today. It was great to have you, Brian.